few weeks ago, I preached a message titled, Understanding the Times and Knowing What to Do. Understanding the Times and Knowing What to Do. The message was based on three passages of Scripture. First, 1 Chronicles 12.32, where it said that the men of Issachar understood their times and knew what to do in their generation. Secondly, Acts chapter 2, Peter's message to the Jews. And then finally, Acts chapter 17, Paul's message to the Greek philosophers in his day. The purpose of that message was to alert the UBC family to the sad reality of our American culture as it continues to decline or to change for the worse. We are drifting further and further away from our Judeo-Christian foundation. We live in a culture where Christianity is barely tolerated and in some, in some ways, actually, Christianity is openly attacked. And I gave you several ex- examples of that in the last message. And one of the reasons for this is that the church, I believe, is failing to communicate effectively with people in our current culture. Too many of us remain silent about our faith and are not sharing the good news of the gospel. And the few of us who do share the gospel are doing so as if we are speaking to the American culture of 30 or 40 years ago. As if we were preaching and teaching the gospel uh, to those who have a Christian worldview or even a Christian background. What we know from our current pollsters, George Barna and George Gallup, is that Americans today, very few of, um, of us actually do have a Christian worldview or a Christian background. And so we are preaching like Peter, who preached to the Jews of the first century, who understood his religious references, but simply failed to recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah. The problem with our culture today is that so few people have a Christian worldview or even a Christian background. So many people today are growing up not in the church. They're not in our Sunday schools. They're not in our youth groups. They're not in our pews. They're growing up. The fastest growing religion, they say, in our culture today are the nuns. Not the little ladies with the white and black robes, but the N-O-N-E nuns. They have no religion whatsoever. They're not going to anybody's church or synagogue or mosque. They're doing something else on Sunday morning. But it's not a religious experience that they're seeking in an organized religion of any kind. That is the problem in our culture today. And so many times we as Christians, we're answering questions that they're not even asking. And my suggestion to us was that we must be more like the Apostle Paul, seeking or speaking to the Greek intellectuals of his day. We must build a bridge from creation to Christ to help them understand why they need a Savior in the first place. Today's message is related to my last message, and its focus is on the importance of your worldview. The importance of your worldview. And so let's define what a worldview is, and then you'll see how critically important it is to have the right worldview. You've heard it said, ideas have consequences, don't they? Well, your worldview is the lens, like my glasses here, your worldview is the lens through which you filter all of your ideas about everything in your everyday life. 
Let me give you a few other definitions of a worldview and then some examples as to how that plays out. A worldview is the framework from which we view reality and make sense of life and the world. Your worldview is an ideology. It's a philosophy or a theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relationships to God and the world, says David Noble. Your worldview is a combination of all that you believe, all that you believe to be true, and therefore, what you believe becomes the driving force behind every emotion that you feel, every decision that you make, and every action that you take. Now, there are basically six different worldviews. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down in your bulletin. We always leave space and lines in there, empty lines for you to write notes. And there's a pencil in front of you. If you want to write notes on your phone, you can do that, or your pad electronically. But write these six worldviews down because it's important to know what's out there and what different people believe based on the different worldviews that they have. The first worldview is secularism. Secularism. Number one, secularism. The second worldview is Marxism. A lot of isms and schisms. Secularism, number one. Marxism, number two. Postmodernism. Number three, postmodernism. Number four, new spirituality. Number five, Islam. That's a worldview in addition to just a religion, the Islamic worldview. And then you have the Judeo Christian worldview, number six. Those are the six basic worldviews that exist secularism, Marxism, postmodernism, new spirituality, Islam, and then the Judeo Christian worldview. Now, your worldview affects, like I said, what and how you think about and relate to theology, philosophy, ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, and history. So if you want to know why our nation is so divided politically between the left and the right, right, the Democrats, the, the, uh, the uh, Republicans, or the, the right wing or the left wing, or the conservatives and the liberals, it's based on their worldviews, simply put. Because your worldview even affects your political understanding, your political views. It touches every aspect of your life. Now, your worldview must answer the existential questions in life. If it is to be tested as a true worldview or, or the right worldview, it must satisfactorily answer the existential questions of life. Questions like this. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What is the meaning and purpose of life? Is there a difference between right and wrong? Is there a God? If so, can we know him or her or it? Those are existential questions that every worldview must answer. And it's interesting that they do have an answer, but they're not all the same. Otherwise, all the worldviews would be the same. But they're drastically and fundamentally different. Some of them share some, uh, some of the same ideas or some of the same uh, ways of understanding things. But philosophically or fundamentally, they are all very different. 
In their book, Understanding the Times, Jeff Myers and David Noble tell us that our worldview doesn't just reflect what we think the world is like, it directs what we think the world should be like. For example, do you think that women should marry women or that men should marry men? That's a worldview. How you answer that question depends on the worldview that you have. Do you think the abortion debate is about a woman's right to her own body or is it about the right for the unborn person to live? Your worldview will help you to answer that question one way or another. Is it right for Christian singles to sleep with their lover to whom they are not married? Again, your worldview will answer that question for you. You will sieve that question through the lens of your worldview and have an answer one way or another. Is it okay for gender-confused children or adults to use the bathrooms of their choice instead of the bathroom that corresponds to their biological gender at birth? Once again, your worldview will help you decide what is right and wrong in that situation. Should I care about racial injustice or economic inequality? If so, what should I do about it? Now, depending on your worldview, you may have very different answers to these questions. And those answers have grave consequences for our society, again, one way or another. And so I hope you can see just how critically important it is to have the right worldview. You say, okay, but pastor, how can I be sure I have the right worldview? Well, there is a test that each worldview must pass. Each worldview must answer the question of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. On the question of origin, where did we come from? The secular Darwinian worldview says we evolved from monkeys billions and billions of years after the Big Bang. The Christian worldview says God created us in his image, which gives us inherent self-worth and infinite value. On the question of meaning, what is life all about? What is my purpose? What gives my life meaning? Some in the secular worldview say it's fame, fortune, position, or power. Well, just take a look at the tragic end of the lives of people like Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Robin Williams, the famed chef Anthony Bourdain, did they each not have great talent and fame and fortune and influence and power? And yet their lives tragically ended in suicide or drug overdose. See, the Christian worldview says knowing God and living out his kingdom values gives our lives meaning and purpose. On the question of morality, the secular worldview says that morality is relative just like truth is relative. There are no absolutes, says the secular worldview. It all depends on the situation and how you feel at the moment. The Christian worldview says that our Lord Jesus Christ is the immovable standard of morality. His life and his teachings are the ultimate reality of morality. And Jesus said the greatest commandment is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
And Jesus didn't just give us those commands, he lived them. He embodied those commands in the 33 years of life he lived on this planet. One day as a Christian minister, uh, he had an opportunity to visit with some Palestinian terrorists who were convicted of their crimes of terrorism and were serving time in an Israeli prison. He was there trying to understand the Muslim worldview and the generational tensions between the Muslim Arabs and the Jewish Israelis. He said to the convicted Muslim terrorists, is it true that the Quran teaches revenge on your enemies? In other words, if they kill one of your brothers, you kill one of their sons. If they hurt you, you hurt them, and so on and so on. The terrorist said, absolutely. Christian minister said, the Christian New Testament teaches us that we must look, turn the other cheek, that we must forgive as we have been forgiven. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross of crucifixion, the Bible says that he, he could have called legions of angels to not only deliver him from his tor torment and torture, but also wipe out his enemies. But do you know what he did instead, he said to this terrorist? He looked up to the heavens and he whispered, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Could it be, the minister said to the terrorist, that if both sides of this ancient conflict accepted the sacrificial death of God's son for their sins, neither side would have to sacrifice another one of their sons, and thereby this seemingly endless conflict will end. Number four, on the question of destiny, the secular worldview says that there is no life after death. This life is all there is. So you better get all you can, however you can, sit on the can, as long as you can. It's survival of the fittest. You've heard it. In our modern American vernacular, we say, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, right? You hear that in your job sometimes? It's out there. Where does that, where does that idea come from? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. It's the survival of the fittest. Does anyone here remember the title of Darwin's book on origins? Today, it's often known by its shorter title. On the origin of species is the short title. It's just a ab convenient abbreviation of the longer, more revealing title, which is on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle of life. That's the full title of the Darwinian evolutionary theses from Charles Darwin. Did you know that Hitler and many of his generals in the SS read Darwin's book and were heavily influenced by its principles? Did you know that? It's not hard then to see a direct connection between the Jewish Holocaust and Hitler's secular Darwinian worldview. Ideas, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, ideas have consequences for good or evil. The Christian worldview of destiny is that God is the ultimate judge of good and evil, and every person will one day stand in his courtroom of divine justice and answer for their sins. If somebody has wronged you, 
and you think that they've gotten away with it, they haven't. Because they will one day stand and have to answer to God for what they did or didn't do to you or for you. Know that. So whatever miscarriage of justice happens here on earth, and as much as you can, pursue justice through the legal means that you have. But if there's still at the end of the day you feel, you feel unsatisfied with the justice or injustice that, that has been received by you, God has not, it has not escaped God. And nobody on this planet will ever stand in his divine court of justice and get a pass. That is the Christian worldview. And that's one of the reasons we have hope in the resurrection. And we have hope for the final judgment to come. That God will make all things right that have been wrong on planet earth. There are only two answers for the question of sin. Because everybody is going to have to answer for their sins. Either you have received God's sacrificial payment for your sins and are forgiven. Or... You have rejected God's sacrificial payment for your sins, and you must pay for them yourself by spending eternity in hell. Somebody asked the question, well, I don't believe in a God that sends people to hell. He doesn't send people to hell. What he sent was his son to deliver you from hell. And you rejected that payment for your sin, therefore you're, you're guilty. And you have no other payment for your sin except for yourself in hell, separating from the God that you rejected. You see, if, if, you, if you wanted to be with God in heaven, you would accept his son. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll love my Father in heaven. If you love my Father in heaven, you'll love me. You'll accept me, you accept my Father in heaven, and vice versa. And so if you want grace and mercy, then you accept the punishment that God sent for you. It's not a matter of God sending anyone to hell. It's about you rejecting what God has already sent for you to deliver you from the sin that, is, that plagues in the entire humanity. And so not only must each worldview answer the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, these answers given by each worldview must also stand up to the three tests. Number one, logical consistency. Number two, empirical adequacy, and number three, experiential relevancy. Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevancy. You say, what in the world are those things mean? What do they mean? Logical consistency means that the arguments put forth by each worldview on the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny make sense, and they fit together like puzzle pieces. They are logical and consistent in their coherence and in their correspondence with each other. Secondly, empirical adequacy means that you can check out or verify the truth claims in history. For example, when you study the prophecies of the Old Testament about the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can verify the fulfillment of every prophecy in the historical writings of the New Testament. In other words, there is real falsifiable evidence for the birth, life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why the Apostle Paul said, unless Christ be raised from the dead, our, our faith is futile, meaningless. And so everything in the Christianity hangs on the validity 
the veracity of the resurrection. And I can't wait till Easter comes this year because we love to proclaim the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you're planning to be with us in our Good Friday service right here where six of my preacher friends will come, actually seven, will come and preach the seven last words of Christ from the cross. We have the documented eyewitnesses and testimonies which can be empirically verified about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, there must be experiential relevancy. When you look at the testimonies and the lives of millions of Christian people over thousands of years, you begin to realize that Christianity is not just a religion. It's a relationship with the very spirit of the resurrected Christ, and when you enter into that relationship by faith through his grace, in your own experience, you recognize how relevant Christ is to you. He fulfills your deepest longings and needs. He, he gives you a joy that the world cannot take away. He enables you to love the unlovable and to forgive your worst enemies. And many of you have experienced that. Many of you have experienced not only the forgiveness of God, but you've experienced the forgiveness of somebody that you wronged. And you know that that forgiveness came because of Christ in their lives. And some of you have had to forgive others who have severely wronged you. And you know that the only way that you found the courage and the wherewithal to forgive them is because of what Christ has done for you. I wish I had time to tell you the stories. I've, one of the things I love to do is when I meet people, I, just, I have a set of questions on my mind because I'm always curious to know about people's lives. And no matter how long or short time I have with people, by the time that we're through with our conversation, I've usually graciously pulled out of them a story that helps me understand a good bit of their lives. And I've done that with most, if not all of you, sitting here today. And I know the pains that many of you have endured at the hands of loved ones, spouses or former spouses, children in rebellion, friends, other family members, bosses, et cetera, et cetera. And it can go on. Some of you have had to forgive me because of some pain or wrong that I've caused you. I've had to forgive many of you because of the pain and wrongs you've caused me. Nowhere is that possible except in the Christian worldview. The other worldview says, forget about them, cut them off, kill them, don't talk to them anymore, mistreat them as they mistreat you. See, only the Christian worldview has this concept of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Only the Spirit of Christ can do that. Now at this point, some of you are wondering if we are ever going to get to the Bible. You're asking, what in the world does the Bible have to do and have to say about worldviews, right? Well, the term worldview does not occur in the Bible, but the concept surely does. So let me answer your curiosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 we can put that up. I think I'm going to go up to start in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. Let me just read 
couple of these verses and make some comments. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, some Christians are pacifists, and they don't even like the mention of war or weapons, and I get that. But the Apostle Paul reminds us Christians that there is indeed a war being waged, and we are in it. Whether we like it or not, we are in the middle of a serious war. It is a spiritual war, a war between Satan and his demons, God and his angels, and his saints. And so the only question is, whose side are you on? And more importantly, who's on your side? <laughs> because if God's on your side, you don't need anybody else, right? If, if, if you're on God's side and he's on your side, we're on the winning side. In 1839, British author Edward Bulwer-Lytton famously said, The pen is mightier than the sword. The Apostle Paul would agree because that is exactly what he is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Our weapons are not guns and swords and bombs like the world uses. Our weapons are more powerful. Ask Dr. Martin Luther King about his weapon. It was the word of God and powerful, persuasive speech and nonviolent action. Our weapons are more powerful. They are the blood and the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, according to the book of Revelation. Our weapons have divine power to demolish the strongholds. I say, what in the world are strongholds? Strongholds, the ancient strongholds Paul refers to here, were what we would call forts, like Fort Dearborn. If you've ever been downtown on Dearborn Street, the reason that Dearborn Street is named Dearborn Street is because there was a fort there. The reason I just got back from Fort Lauderdale. The reason that's called Fort Lauderdale is because there was a port there that was a, a fort or fortress, uh, a military installation that defended a port of entry or defended a city. When we were in Israel, we saw many old ancient forts that are still there. I mean, the bricks or the, the stones are as old as, you know, a couple thousand years old. Amazing. And still standing, these ancient forts. Those were the strongholds in the ancient world, military installations where folks would, would go and, uh, and defend the city or defend the port of entry against enemies. And Paul says that, Satan, the father of lies, deceives many people with false arguments about God, which becomes for them a fort or a stronghold of unbelief or disbelief in their lives. And so these strongholds are, are fortresses of disbelief or unbelief because of the lies or deceptions of the enemy. In other words, these strongholds become false worldviews with the devastating consequences that false worldviews have. Therefore, Paul says we must demolish these false arguments and 
take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Think about so many of your unchurched co-workers, neighbors, friends, and relatives. They have been taken captive by the deceptive lies of our enemy Satan. They're not evil people, per se. They have accepted a worldview that is not the Christian worldview. And that is the reason why they think and act the way they do. And so, we ought not think of them as the enemy. Because they are not our enemy. They are simple tools in our enemy's hands to get on our nerves, to attack us, to whatever, right? To ridicule us, to make us feel small or what, you know, marginalized. But it's because the devil has captivated their minds. So they're not our enemy. There's no need for us to engage them as if they are our enemy. But we are to engage the ideas planted in their minds that have become strongholds that cause them to see the world through those deceptions and then act accordingly to those deceptions that are different from the Christian worldview. And that's why it's wrong whenever we as Christians are out there, you know, denigrating people like homosexuals, for example, and shouting them down and marching against them. And No, that's not the way to treat, because they're people who have been deceived by the enemy to believe what, what they believe and how they behave. And so our approach is to deal with this spiritual war, not as if we're fighting flesh and blood, but it's we're fighting the powers and principalities of darkness that have set up these strongholds of deceptive ideas and thoughts. And we do that by logical, persuasive, humble, loving arguments. And so God says that he wants to use you and I to have ongoing gospel conversations with them to destroy the stronghold of lies that they have believed. To challenge them to consider the claims of Christ and the evidence for the validity of the Christian worldview. Let me close with one more passage, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. So then, just as you received Christ, Jesus, as Lord, continued to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Now look at these wonderful and descriptive words that Paul used to speak of the vibrant relationship that we, have, that we ought to have in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first one is the imperative or the command to live in Christ. Verse 6, do you see that? That's a command. He says, live in Christ. What follows are the descriptives telling us how to live in Christ. Do you see them? Verse 7, he says, rooted. Be rooted in Christ. Be built up. In Christ, be strengthened or established in Christ. And then he says, finally, be grateful. One of my favorite men in this church is our head usher, Herman Wyndham. He has a saying that has impressed me over the years that I've known him. Whenever I ask him how he's doing, he almost always says a simple yet powerful word grateful. He says, I'm grateful. 
Now, it's not because his life is full of worldly wealth and pleasures. No, it's quite, quite opposite, actually. His life is often filled with pain and suffering and disappointments, but he has an eternal perspective that can only come from his vibrant relationship with Christ. And so no matter what's going on in Herman's life, he can always say, Pastor, I'm grateful. And he says it with a smile. It just rolls off his tongue. He doesn't have to think about it because he knows the depth from which Christ has brought him. He could say like the old preachers used to say down south, can't nobody do me like Jesus. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just like that. And that's what makes him a great head usher. So let me ask you, are you rooted in Christ? Are you being built up in Christ? Are you being strengthened or established in your Christian faith? No, that's why we have growth groups here at UBC. Did you know that? And that's why we encourage everyone to be part of a growth group. And we, matter of fact, I think some growth groups just got started. And it's not too late. There's probably some empty seats. So if you're not in a growth group, find one and get in it so that you can live out this passage of Scripture in Colossians. Rooted, built up, established, grateful. Do you abound or overflow with thanksgiving? Or are you one of those Debbie Downers? Always complaining, grumbling, arguing about something with somebody. You know anybody like that? Tell the truth and shame the devil. You might be one. Don't be a Debbie Downer, always complaining, grumbling, arguing about something. Find something good to be, something to be grateful for. You know, we, we teach our kids sometimes when they get to grumbling and complaining like children do sometimes. We know what we do. We say, okay, I want you to go in your room. I want you to count all your toys. Count every, get them all out, all the games, all the toys. Get them, count them. <laughs> count them. Okay, count all the clothes you have in your closet. In your, go in the refrigerator and count everything in the refrigerator to eat and drink. Go in the cupboard, count everything. Look around and see, count your bed, your mattress, your pillow. If you just count your blessings, you have no time to grumble and complain. Amen? For real. And that's why gratitude is such an important part of Christian teaching. It's because... The non-Christian worldview makes you thirsty to want more of this world and dissatisfied with what you have so you can get more. Buy more, get more, get all you can, while you can, anyhow you can, to sit on the can, as long as you can. Christian worldview is different. Christian worldview is based on the words and the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so finally, Paul urges the believers in Colossae an ancient city in modern Turkey, to never allow themselves to be captivated by the empty philosophies and deceptions of the many false worldviews. And why is that? Because those false worldviews are not based on Christ. It's not based on Christ. And the consequences of those worldviews are devastating. Remember, some years ago, WWJD, anybody remember that? Many Christians were wearing WWJD bracelets and T-shirts and hats. The movement encouraged Christians to ask a simple question to direct their everyday lives. What 
would Jesus do? I suggest to you that it would not hurt to revive that question in our everyday lives. It may help us to reclaim the Christian worldview as our guide for everyday Christian living. On Tuesday, when you go to vote, you ought to ask the question, what would Jesus do? Because our worldview helps us determine what party platform we're going to support. Okay? And you just look. You can read for yourself. They're not, they're, the, the candidates don't hide what they believe in terms of, they put it out there. Here's where I stand on this, that, and the other thing. And then you can decide, based on where they stand on the issues and the, on the policies, what views line up more closely to the Christian worldview. And then make your decision accordingly. So, as I close, who is your one? Who are you having gospel conversations with in your sphere of influence? In your unchurched family and friends and neighbors, co-workers, schoolmates? Who are you praying for? Who are you having gospel conversations with to tear down those walls, those fortresses of deception so that they can clearly see the truth of who Christ is and his gospel message for them. Whose strongholds of deceptions are you pulling down by way of humble, logical, persuasive arguments based on the truth and historical facts of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and his resurrection? Let's stand as we pray.